a number of the uh, members of this congregation volunteer regularly at the food bank, uh, the um, what's it called, the Alaska Food Bank's mobile food pantry, which is located at the um, uh, uh, Nazarene Church on 88th Street in our neighborhood down there. And um, uh, we recently had a little bit of a uh, uh, controversy because there was um, instructions that came from um, in food bank headquarters or, or whatever wherever instructions come from that said they shouldn't pray before they distributed the food. There, the practice at that church where we we sometimes volunteer um, had been to pray before they began distributing the food. And when I heard this, I kind of rolled my eyes because headquarters has some interesting ideas about the way the mobile food pantry works. They have ideas that we have a first aid station and that we have warm water for washing and things like that. So they've got a lot of interesting ideas. But I understand where this impulse is coming from. This impulse is the idea well, I guess the, it's not really an impulse, it's a rule. It's the golden rule. The, the one who has the gold makes the rules. And the Alaska Food Bank gets its money or gets a lot of its money from the government through the form of grants for different programs. There's about almost 300 programs the Alaska Food Bank administers. Um, a lot of them are not even in Anchorage. And the mobile food pantry is a little tiny program off in the corner that doesn't get any money and doesn't spend any money. So it's really just a headache to them um, in a lot of ways. And they don't want the hassle of having to deal with this um, prayer problem because because that's the rule. They get the rule along with all the other money they receive that they don't want to have um, prayers. And and honestly, I understand this. I think it's a good rule. We have in this country an idea that you shouldn't tax everybody and then use that money to promote one particular uh, faith viewpoint. That's kind of part of our American DNA. And I don't know how it works in other countries. I know there's a lot of countries that have ideas that that the minority um, should kind of come up to speed, and it's the job of the majority to help them along. And uh, that may be the case some places, but in America, uh, just our historical roots and so forth, we have this idea that there's a strong distinction between the government and the churches. Now, uh, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you may say, well, that's not the impression I get. I get the impression that you guys are always budding in our business. But uh, this is the truth, that this is something, and it has to do with, you know, pilgrims and Plymouth Rock and all that stuff we we halfway remember from from our history classes, but that's the idea: is that is that Christians should not uh, leverage the government in order to to make other people Christians or to impose a particular religious viewpoint on others. Just last year, um, this is not something that we might have paid attention to because it's not part of our tradition, but the Southern Baptists, which are the um, largest Protestant Christian group. In America, uh, they're about twice the size of the Methodists, which we are part of. The Southern Baptists um, intervened in a case in New Jersey. They actually filed a brief asking for the city of Basking Ridge to uh, grant permits, building permits, to an Islamic center that was trying to build a mosque. And they said that you can't have the government interfering with people based on their particular viewpoint, their particular religious viewpoint. And um, that's, that's a, I think, a very typical example of the way Christians uh, feel about other faith traditions, that, that uh, they may not be what we believe, but we don't want the government in the business telling people uh, what to do, um, even on my side versus your side, that, that that's just something that's in the American DNA. So 
That's kind of, that's kind of our idea. And, uh, the reason for that is because we don't want to be like the people in our reading. In our reading today, uh, there's there's always a temptation. You know, this one's free. If you if you're reading the Bible and you want to get more out of it, here's a here's a technique you can apply. It's sometimes pretty obvious who the good guys and the bad guys are in the reading, right? The the Goliath versus David, the underdogs versus the the ruling council. It's sometimes pretty obvious who the good guys are and who the bad guys are, and a technique you might try when you're reading the scriptures is to not assume you're the good guys. Mm-hmm. To to start with the assumption, how am I like the bad guys? How am I like the ruling council? And the truth of the matter is, in this country, we're a lot like the ruling council. I mean, we're not actually the ruling council, but we elect them. They are our representatives. So uh, the rules that we have should be uh, rules that we would like if we were... Peter and John, right? We want, we want to do our job well of being a ruling council. We don't want to be on the other side of the table in this story. So that's where, that's where the historical background is for that idea that, that Southern Baptists support the building of mosques in Basking Ridge, New Jersey. So that's kind of the, the big idea. But the truth of the matter is, even after I've spent all this time explaining it, it's kind of theoretical. You know, you know, the truth of the matter is we we like the idea that the government's not going to tell us how we should express our faith. But honestly, most of us are not butting up against the government right now, are we? You know, most of us are not standing on the street corners, uh, standing on a soapbox telling people all about Jesus. Most of us are not walking through neighborhoods, knocking on doors and handing out pamphlets. The truth of the matter is for most of us, the the freedom to express our faith is really kind of an abstract privilege that we don't actually invoke much. I mean, you know, we might be willing to tell people what we think about our faith or about spirituality, but it's going to take some work to get it out of most of us. And and let me tell you, I'm talking about myself here too. Um, there's a there's a pastor I listen to his podcast, and you don't know it, but so do you, because anything good I steal and repeat in one of my sermons. Um, <laughs> But uh, he, I think of him as the airline evangelist because he seems to always be telling these stories about the way he's on the airplane and he's tired and has put on his headphones. He doesn't want inter- to interact with anybody. And the person sitting next to him is like pounding on his headphones saying, hey, can we talk about Jesus? And it's like, what airline does this guy fly on? <laughs> right? I mean, I'm, I'm a pastor, right? Uh, it's all I can do to have a conversation with somebody who's not a Christian. So, I mean, I have to work at it to find somebody who's not a Christian. And usually then it's like I don't immediately say, well, let me tell you all about Jesus. And it's challenging when I read the scriptures because particularly in the book of Acts, it seems like Peter and John are always telling people about Jesus. We heard it in our scripture today. They're always telling people about Jesus. But if we go back to the beginning of this story, this story kind of spans Two and a half chapters, and I tried to cut out uh, bits to make it shorter. But if we go back to the very beginning, it says why they went, how this all started. They didn't go to the temple to tell people about Jesus. They went to the temple to pray. There was a regularly scheduled prayer service every afternoon at the temple at 3 p.m. They went to pray. That's what they were there for. And it was while they were there. They saw this lame man. He had been lame from birth, been there 40-something years, we read. And 
He was begging because in that society, that was the social safety net. The social safety net was you sat there with a bowl in front of you, and if people put money in it, then you had something to eat. But that was pretty much it. So he sees Peter and John coming, and he looks up at them, hoping that they're going to hand him some money. And Peter says, I don't have any money for you, but here's what I will do. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And that's what happens. We read that um, Peter took the lame man by the right hand and helped him up. And as he did, his, the man's feet and ankles were instantly healed and strengthened. He jumped up, stood on his feet, and began to walk. And then walking, leaping, and praising God, he went into the temple with them. So, so far, nobody's told anybody about Jesus. But then the crowd says, wait a minute, I recognize that guy. He's been coming as long as I've, he's been here as long as I've been coming to the temple. I recognize that lame man, except he's not lame anymore. He's walking and leaping around, praising God. What happened? They want to know what happened. And then Peter tells them all about how he was healed in the name of Jesus. He says, um, it was by faith in the name of Jesus Christ. And as Peter habit is, he says, who you crucified just a couple of months ago, God raised him from the dead and he is now healing people or I am healing people in his name. And that's when the cops show up. So it says, while Peter and John were speaking to the people, they were confronted by the priests, the captain of the temple guard and some of the Sadducees. These leaders were very disturbed that Peter and John were teaching the people that through Jesus there was resurrection of the dead. So they arrested them, and since it's already, you know, five o'clock in the afternoon or something, they say, we'll have your trial tomorrow. So the, we pick up the story the next morning. Um, they have the trial. The council of all the rulers and elders of the teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. So basically all the leaders of the Jewish ruling council are there. And they say, by what power or in whose name... Have you done this? How did you heal this guy? And Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, this is Luke's way of reminding us of what he told us about back in chapter 2, that when Jesus ascended to heaven, he sent his spirit down. Jesus went up, the spirit came down. The spirit was poured out on all flesh, um, that, that God is no longer inaccessible to humanity, that God is actually available to us because Jesus has acted to reconnect us to God. So Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he says to them, are you really asking me, are you really asking me, you know, am I on trial because I did a good deed? Is that really what this is all about? Because if it is, let me tell you. He says, let me clearly state to you, all of you and all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, the stone you bu- you builders. Peter actually adds that. The psalm doesn't say you builders. It says the builders. Peter adds that. He says, the stone that you builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else. Now, again, to American ears, we're thinking, you know, religious pluralism. We don't want to have church and state. We don't want to have an established religion. That sounds pretty intolerant. What Peter is saying is, look, you're you're free to try any name you want. But I'm just telling you how you can jump, you know, you can skip ahead because this is the name that works. He's standing right here. Notice he's standing. He's not sitting. Okay. Peter says, here's the secret. I'm telling you the secret. This is what works. 
There is salvation, salvation in no one else. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. And the council says, what are we going to do? They send them out of the room and they say, these guys have no seminary education. They don't belong here. They're not even related to the right people. They're a bunch of hillbillies from Galilee. They've come down here and um, they are, you know, we could ignore them because they don't have the right education. They're not, they're not taught. They're illiterate. There's a, there's a word here. Um, about every two years, I find a Greek word that I enjoy. It says they're idiotes which is the Greek word for someone who hasn't been taught. It's where we get our word idiot. So Peter and John are idiots. So we should all aspire to be idiots like Peter and John. So um, they, they look at them and they say, you guys have no special training. You're ordinary men. You're hillbillies from Galilee. What are you even doing here? But they say, we can't deny this guy is standing right here. So they ordered them out, and they say, what are we going to do? And they say, all right, here's what we're going to do. We're going to warn them not to speak to anyone in Jesus' name again. So they called them back and commanded them never again to speak or teach in the name of Jesus. Peter and John say, well, you're going to have to decide whether to prosecute, okay, because we're not going to stop talking about what we've seen and heard. It says, you, you have to decide if you think God wants us to obey you rather than him, that's up to you. We don't have any control over that. But the piece we do have control over is we're going to go on telling people what we've seen and heard. See, that's that's really the key to what's going on in this passage. This is not about whether you've got the, the freedom to to talk about Jesus or the courage to talk about Jesus. Peter's saying, here's what I've seen. You know, last week, if you were here, what what we saw is Peter is saying to the crowd, Peter gives the first sermon in the church on, on the day of Pentecost, and he says, he says, this is what God is doing. But now, two chapters have gone by. It's a couple of days, a couple of weeks later, and Peter is saying, this is what God is doing through me. This is what I'm doing in the name of Jesus Christ. See, it's not about telling people about Jesus. It's not summoning up the courage so you can go through your neighborhood, knocking on doors, interrupting people's dinners, and telling them about Jesus. It's not about summoning up the courage to tell people about Jesus. It's about summoning up the courage to act in the name of Jesus. It's about looking at the world and saying, would Jesus be okay with this? Because if Jesus is not okay with this, I'm going to do something in his name. It's about risking that God is going to help you do the thing that you're saying, I don't know what to do about a lame person. I don't know what to do about homelessness or hunger or domestic violence or any of the other problems that the church has faced. But to say, I don't think Jesus is okay with it. And so I'm not going to tell people about Jesus. I'm going to do something in the name of Jesus. Summoning up the courage to believe that Jesus is behind you, that Jesus is alongside you, that actually Jesus is in front of you. Jesus is already working on this problem. If you do, you will have a story you cannot resist telling. It won't be about... Is this a good time? Because people will say, wait a minute, whatever possessed you to take on that problem in our city? Whatever possessed you to, to, to go to Malawi and become a volunteer at an orphanage? What on earth would make you do that? 
they will want to hear your story and you will have an irresistible story. This is a story about courage, but it's not the courage to tell people about Jesus. It's the courage to do something in his name. And really, the lesson is the same for us in the church. If we were a larger church and we were facing problems, what we would probably do is we'd hire a consultant. The consultant would come in and ask us questions like this. If this church vanished, would anyone notice? That's a question churches often get asked. There's a, there's a church, I listen to a lot of podcasts because I gotta fill up these sermons somehow. There's a church in Colorado that I admire, and they were meeting in a strip mall, and, uh, they were, they were too big, they were having like 13 services on a weekend or something, you know, Saturday, Sunday, eight services a day, something like that. And they, they wanted to get another building. They wanted to get a bigger building where more of them could meet in a single service. And, they saw the vacant Walmart across the street. And they went to the city and said, we'd like to buy that. And the city said, it's not zoned for you. We're not going to destroy our tax base in this, in this part of town by uh, letting a nonprofit purchase it. And so they, they went back, back and forth for, for years um, asking the city to, to do this. And um, the city said no, and so they finally uh, broke ground. They actually had the stakes in the ground. They didn't break ground, but they had the stakes in the ground in an area outside of town where the city would let them be zoned as a big church. And they said, you know what, let's go back one last time. So they went to the city and they said, can we do this? And this time the city said, let's talk. And one of the councilmen in the city said this. He said, see, when you first asked us, we thought you were part of the problem. And now we think... You're part of the solution. Because during that time, the church didn't talk about Jesus. I mean, they talked about Jesus themselves. But for their, from the point of view of their community, they didn't talk about Jesus. They didn't go through neighborhoods telling people about Jesus. What they did is they started acting in the name of Jesus. And that's what changed the community's perspective. And that's what we're called to do. We're called to be a church that if we vanished, our community would notice. This story is not one about a minority that's being persecuted and they need to stand in their rights. It's not about having the freedom to tell people about Jesus. It's about having the courage to act in the name of Jesus. My prayer for you and my prayer for this church is we will be that kind of community. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give thanks for the example of Peter and John. Um, Too often, Lord, our freedom to exercise our faith is very theoretical. Lord, so we pray that you would give us uh, eyes to see like Jesus sees, to see the things that he would call us to begin working on so that we can have an irresistible story. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.